Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Now we come to the last hours of his life, the death of Jesus Christ. And we back up, we wonder, where in the world was God? How could God just sit back, allow this injustice to take place? How in the world? And he said, Lord, not my will, what I desire, but what you desire, thy will be done. Salvation. The truth is your Father in heaven will never forsake you. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Feeling Forsaken, and shares why you can trust that God will never abandon you. Stay with us. The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young starts in just a moment. Here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Feeling Forsaken. There is nothing pleasant about an execution. Down through history, for those who commit capital crimes, the punishment has been death. Many means have been used to carry out the punishment. Electric chair, firing squads, hangman's noose, beheading, lethal injection, a lot of ways to do it. Crucifixion is a methodology that most of us are not familiar with. We know that Jesus was crucified. We don't understand this very clearly. Crucifixion came from the Phoenicians. The Romans picked it up and practiced it because they wanted to use crucifixion as a slow way of dying with tremendous suffering as an example for those of us who would perhaps want to commit a crime, but we'd see the punishment for the crime and the crime that the person had committed would be on a placard around their neck. And so the slow process of crucifixion, they would put it in prominent places, in crossroads, It would be a higher cross, the Roman cross, because a lower cross, the dogs would come and and participate in the crucifixion of dying. So they lifted it up so everybody could see the Roman cross, crucifixion, crucifixion. We come to the death of Jesus, and we see that this is how he died. Have you ever thought about it? We've looked at the autobiography of God and we've said that it's Jesus in human flesh. We've looked at it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've walked through his life. And now we come to the last hours of his life, the death of Jesus Christ. And we back up, we wonder, where in the world was God? Where was God? How did he let his son die like this? Pilate, judge and jury, examined Jesus, and he came back and said it clearly. I find no fault in this man. 
and he turned right around and had him crucified. How could God just sit back and allow this injustice to take place? How in the world? You see, we know that Jesus was on a mission, a life purpose, a calling. I thought this week about 9-11. Those pictures that you and I will never forget as the hundreds are fleeing those towering infernos, collapsing fire, smoke, as hundreds are running away. At the same time, you remember those first responders, the, the policemen, the firemen, the medical people running toward the infernos. Hundreds running away Dozens and dozens running toward. What was in the mind of those who were charging those towers? One word. Rescue. Rescue. They were going to rescue those who were harmed, injured, trapped. They were in the rescuing business. That's the mission of Jesus, isn't it? We look at the word salvation. And we said it means to rescue, it means to heal. That was his mission. That is what he was about. We look at the Garden of Gethsemane. We walked very carefully as Jesus looked in that cup. He said, let this cup pass from me. And he looked in that cup. He saw hell. He saw hell in that cup. And he saw that he would have to drink hell that was the cross. And he said, Lord, not my will, what I desire, but what you desire, thy will be done. And he saw that that was the mission of God displayed through Jesus Christ in his life on this earth. That was his mission, salvation in the rescuing business. God was in Christ reconciling, rescuing the world to get right with God. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And we've looked at the seven words that Jesus uttered from the cross, seven phrases. We've looked at three of them, and now we're on the fourth word, and we'll finish up with the last three in our next study time together. But I want you to notice something. The first three words that we've looked at three phrases that Jesus uttered from the cross, there's nothing surprising about those phrases. There really isn't. The first thing Jesus said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Does Jesus pronouncing forgiveness, does that surprise anybody? No, that was his life's calling. That was what he was about. No surprise there. He was on the cross providing forgiveness for those who were there and for those of us who were not there Yet we were there. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? No, not literally. Yet we were there. Our sin was there. So the first word is not surprising. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The second word is not really surprising we looked at. Here's the thief by him on the cross. He sees king, king of the Jews. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not surprising. Jesus said, 
Today you'll be with me in my kingdom. You'll be with me in paradise. Jesus offering a word of salvation, forgiveness to the thief. Anybody surprised by Jesus doing that? No, I'm not. And then there was Mary and John by the cross. Jesus kept the fifth commandment. What is it? Honor your father and your mother. And so he saw his mom there. He said, Mary, hey, this is your son, John. And John, this is your mother, Mary. And there was a Jewish adoption that took place. Jesus keeping the fifth commandment. Does that surprise anybody? No, no surprises there. And we'll look at the next three words in our study. No surprises there. I thirst. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. No surprising there. But this fourth word we're looking at. Shocking. Unbelievable. And so we come to this fourth word, and we have three great mysteries here in just two verses. You know what a mystery is? A mystery is something that we don't quite get. We don't quite understand. It's an enigma. It's something that seems to be impossible or improbable, but we have clues that maybe perhaps, and it's just shrouded, it's covered, it's veiled. We don't quite get it. It is a mystery. And we look at three great mysteries in just two verses. Open your Bibles, if you would, Matthew chapter number 27. By the way, if we looked at these seven words, they're found in four of the Gospels. Matthew and Mark only record this fourth word we're looking at, this fourth phrase Jesus uttered. And the other two Gospels record the other six words. So let's look at a couple of verses and we'll see these mysteries. Verse 45, Matthew 27. Now about the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first mystery is the darkness. Darkness is overwhelming. Let's just practice a little darkness. Could we do that? Let's practice darkness. As things get dark all around us, with as little light as possible. It's said in our scripture that from the sixth hour, that'd be 12 noon, to the ninth hour, that would be three o'clock in the afternoon. For three hours, Jesus on the cross Suddenly, there was the mystery of darkness. It was not just clouds. It was not just a sandstorm. It was at midnight with no light at all. Darkness. Surrounded in darkness. There was silence. 12 to 3. 12 to 3. Silence. In the Bible, we see in the first chapter of Genesis... The story of creation that the earth was void without form, and God said, let there be light. And light came and cried it out, drove out the darkness, and God said, the light, it is good. In the Bible, darkness is always 
a picture of hell. It's always a picture of sin. It's always a picture of loneliness, of desperation. The Bible talks about they were driven into outer darkness. The devil is called, Satan is called the prince of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. Remember the ninth plague there in Egypt? The ninth plague, all of Egypt for three days was shrouded, covered in darkness. Or oh, how forbidding darkness is. How dark is darkness, the night. And here we see the darkness. What was this all about? I think it was the creation Honoring the creator in the fall of man, we read in Romans chapter one, how there will come a day when there will be a restoration of the earth. And we see here, the creation is honoring the creator by surrounding all the cross with darkness. Now I've got a question for you. What was going on in the darkness, in the silence? There'd been a lot of racket in the crowd a motley crowd, a crying crowd, a crucifying crowd, a, a jeering crowd, a booing crowd. You'd heard the whip, you'd heard the wails, you'd heard the nails, you'd heard the sighs, you'd heard the conversations, you heard the dialogue, all the noise, the clamor of a public execution on a cross, loud, then all of a sudden, 12 noon, whew, darkness. What was happening? I think this is when the mystery gets even deeper. It is when sin of humanity was transferred to the perfect Son of God. It's when all of our iniquity and grossness and immorality and hypocrisy and phony piosity. It is all the death, the murder, the slander, the slain, the slime was transferred somehow into the Son of God. He drank the cup of hell, and I have a feeling on that cross, wave after wave of trash and garbage flowed into him. It was dark because God did not want to see what was happening in the perfect son of himself. Darkness. And then after three hours of darkness, the Bible says there was a shout, a loud shout, and Jesus from the cross says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the light can come on. Great mystery, the darkness. A greater mystery is the next part of our verse, which is a Prayer to God, which is a question. My God, why? It's a prayer. It's the only place in the Bible where Jesus asked God the Father a question. He says, my God, why? Interesting, isn't it? Listen, you cannot question the God of creation. 
You can't say, God, you know, why did you do this? Why did you put in the first and second law of thermodynamics? God, I don't know the meaning of gravity. You can't question the God of creation. You and I, we can't question the God of the universe. What about that black hole? What about him who just splashes the sky with stars and with a touch of infinity? God, what do you, we can't question that God. You can't question the Epicurean God. You can't question the, any of the other gods. We have no grounds to ask questions of gods or goddesses. All the myths. We can't say God. But let me tell you who we can question. We can question my God. My God. Maybe the most important word in all of this is my. He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me I'm his own. The voice I hear as he draws near tells me, oh, we can question my God. And here Jesus questions. He said, my God, why? By the way, in Jesus' ministry, his methodology of teaching was asking questions. Have you noticed that? In the Bible, you rarely, if ever, see an example in which Jesus was asked a question he simply answered the question. Check me out. Sometimes there's a couple of little possible illustrations. Usually Jesus would, when he was asked a question, he would answer with a question and he would give a parable or a story where the person who asked the question usually backed up and said, uh-oh, we've looked at that. Uh-oh, man, I wish I hadn't asked that. You know, Jesus responded with, Questions. But here we see the one time in all the scripture, and it is a prayer questioning God. My God, why? That is a greater mystery than the great mystery of the darkness, but there is a greater mystery yet. That's the rest of our verse. My God, why have you forsaken me. Now, you want deep theology? Somebody says, I want to go where they really study the Bible in depth. You can't get deeper than this. God forsaking God. Try that one on for size. My God why? By the way, why is the toughest question to ask? What? You know, how? When? Where? But why gets the motivation? Why do you do that? Why do you think that? Why do you go? It's our motivation. And by the way, most of us get real shabby in our motivational area. You know it. Think about it. Why? How many things have you and I ever done with no thought of any credit in return? When you start naming those, somebody said, well, I love my mother. No, wait, that was, without, that was pure motivation. Well, I had to read. Oh, yeah. Why? My God, why hast thou forsaken me? How can this be? How can it happen? There was a young woman who was standing by her cousin outside their home, and a drive-by came and killed her cousin, dead, man, right on the spot, 
blood all over her. She was hysterical. And from that time on, for month after month, when she would hear a loud noise, bam, she would fall down in the fetal position and just, and she'd go into panic mode. And, and she was getting therapy at a clinic. And she went to the cafeteria with her therapist. And somebody in the cafeteria dropped a tray of food, pow, with a loud noise. And she fell down in a fetal position, just trembling as a result of that traumatic experience with a drive-by killing of her cousin. And so the, the, the therapist took her out in the side room and tried to talk to her, and she said, I miss my father. And the therapist, trying to calm her down, said, well, what is your father's my name? She is said, the most important. She said, what, what did you like about your father? Was he kind? Was he funny? She said, yeah, I think so. She said, I, I, I want my father. And the therapist said, well, uh, your father, what color hair did he have? And she said, black, I think. And, and she said, I, I want my father. Only later on did the therapist find out that this young woman had seen her father only one time in her life. Her and her mother had been deserted by him when she was just young. But now in a moment of extremity, she said, I want my father. I miss my father. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a father hunger built in every one of us. A father hunger built in every one of us. And here is Jesus who had had that intimate, personal relationship. He said, I and my father are one. He said in John 16, all of you are going to forsake me, run away from me, scatter, and, and move away. But he said, my father will be there. David said, the Lord God will never forsake you. Whoa. But here we have Jesus being forsaken by Abba. He had walked in the light of the Shekinah glory in the presence of his father his entire life. And now suddenly in his moment of great need, he is forsaken. What in the world is going on here? God forsaking God, the father forsaking his son. What's happening? What's happening here? Something that is shrouded by the greatest mystery you can imagine. The greatest mystery ever is this moment in biblical history. What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. God is forsaking his son so you and I will never be forsaken. Watch how this works. It's a powerful thing. In the sin transfer, Jesus became the sin bearer. And because we have a holy God, a holy God can never look on sin, can never allow sin, can never tolerate sin, can never pass over sin, because not a stench of sin can ever reach the nostrils of the Almighty in heaven. 
Therefore, it is God in Jesus Christ is reconciling the world to himself. And to do that, he had to take on all of this sin and be our sin bearer. And he had to experience death, D-E-A-T-H. Now, there's two kinds of death. When the prodigal son came back to the far country, remember, the father said, this my son who was dead is alive again. Does that mean the prodigal died in the far country and he came back to life when he, no, 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 no. That was a spiritual death. You see, there is physical death and there is spiritual death. All of us consist of body, soma, spirit, suke, suke, our spirit and our, our soul, suke, our soul, and pneuma, our spirit. Body, soma, suke, spirit, pneuma, pneuma, spirit, suke, soul, body, soul, and spirit. We all have all of this in us. Now, the body dies, soma dies. What about the soul? The suke and the pneuma, the spirit, and the soul. What about, the, what about those two? They die, but that is a spiritual death. You see what happened to the prodigal? He was experiencing spiritual death. Jesus not only had to die on the cross, ladies and gentlemen, a physical death, but also he died a spiritual death in that his soul and his spirit died. And what does it mean for the soul and spirit die? It means for the soul and spirit to be separated from God throughout eternity. That's a total death. Physical death, spiritual death, body death, soul and spirit death, soul and spirit separated from God for eternity. That's what Jesus experienced. As the Bible says, he went to hell on your behalf and on my behalf. And that's what was that in that cup that he was drinking. Isn't that something? This is what's happening. He had to be forsaken. What does it mean to be forsaken? A ship is a derelict. A ship that's a derelict has no captain, no crew, no cargo, no port of destination, no compass, no power, sails, motor. A derelict ship just exists in nothingness for no purpose. That's what Jesus felt. The cry of derelition, deserted, deserted. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me by myself? Why have you deserted me? By the way, this is the human Jesus speaking. Somebody has a famous sermon, great homiletician. He compares the death of Socrates with the death of Jesus. And he says the death of Socrates shows us how a philosopher dies, and the death of Jesus shows us how God dies. That is absolutely theologically wrong. It is biblically wrong. Here we see how a human being dies. Not God on that cross, the humanness of Jesus. Now, we have a great mystery here. We know Jesus was totally God, Jesus was totally man. In his life, when was he exercising his divinity? When was he hanging up his divinity and living on the basis of, huma of his humanity? We don't know. That's, that's the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of 
totally God, totally man we find in Jesus Christ. But I believe here we see the humanity of him. And as a human being, Jesus, though perfect man, felt like he was totally deserted by Almighty God because it had to take place for God to reconcile humanity with himself. Deep water, ladies and gentlemen. But that's the cross of our Lord. All of this took place. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So you and I in Christ can be confident of one thing. You and I will never be forsaken. That's right. We'll never have to walk in the darkness. We'll never have to pay for the sin that we have committed in eternity. Consequences now, of course, but not in eternity. And we will be sons and daughters of God forever because he is our substitute. He is our propitiation. That's God acting through his shed blood. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me is the greatest mystery of all. But in the process of Jesus being forsaken is the fact that you and I will never be forsaken. That's the power. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. That is the drawing power of Jesus on that cross. Amazing, amazing. 9-11. We go back there because many of you remember the story of two of the first responders that went back into the flames. John McLaughlin, William Glimmerow. They went back in the flames rescuing, but they got caught and they were submerged and buried beneath the rubble for many, many hours. They were the last two that were rescued, by the way. They thought they would never be rescued. And so they made a true movie about this event. And I want you to see a little excerpt of it now. Anybody feel deserted? Anybody feel lonely, maybe in the middle of a crowd? Anybody addicted to something that's controlling your life? And anybody here in pain? Uh, whatever it is, whatever the problem, Jesus from the cross, he looks at you. He says, you are my mission. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm with you now until the end of time because all of your garbage has been covered by the blood of Christ and I will be with you forever and forever. You are my mission, says Jesus as he is crucified on that cross. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. We have Dr. Young joining us in the studio now. Dr. Young, you said in today's message that the most important word in the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is my. 
Can you talk about the love that God feels towards us, even to the point of forsaking part of himself? My is the most important word. My, that's you, that's me, that's personal. It's not any God. It's not another God. It's my God. And we can say my God because of Jesus Christ. People have wandered around since the beginning of time saying, what is God like? What would God have me to do? Oh, I wish I could know God. Listen, God became completely knowable in Jesus Christ. He put on human flesh. He lived among us. And we see that his availability is there for those who receive him. So we can say, my God, not that we possess him, but that he possesses us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was that dramatic moment in history when Jesus, in order to take all of our sin upon him, had to be God forsaken. And the fact that Jesus was God forsaken, that made him available so that you and I will never be God forsaken. Because he took all of our sin on himself. Our Heavenly Father, God the Father, cannot look on sin. So how can he deal with you and me as long as we're sinners? And we're all sinners. Ah, but for the fact that Jesus took that up on himself, he was able to say, my God, and be forsaken by God on that cross so that you and I, because of his substitution for you and me, will never be God forsaken. That is a great encouragement. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, Dr. Young, take a moment and, if you would, say a prayer for any listener that they could repeat if they want to be confident of their eternal home in heaven with Christ. 